We are going to be looking at uh, a section of scripture, but I want to set the stage for it first. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told um, by God, literally, he establishes this uh, framework or relational reality and guidelines where a man is to leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is God's arrangement. It's his covenant for humanity. It's his design for family. It's through marriage that God has designed what you could call procreation or the continuation of the human race. Um, He didn't mandate that everyone was to marry, but he did set the framework, the design, in which marriage will work. And so, you know, we live in a time when, you know, things are very confusing. Uh, Many things in many relationships lack stability because they lack roots, and they tend to waver and tip when the storms come. Different cultures have established different traditions, ceremonies, symbolisms, but the foundation is still the same. See, God's design for marriage involves God, a man, and a woman. Regardless of the culture, regardless of where you live, the the, the core is still the same. God, a woman, and a man. That, that's, that's where it's all oriented and begins. And, you know, rather than look at the myriad of practices and beliefs from around the world, let's consider what God has directed and really presented today. I want to go over the, some ancient Jewish marriage ceremonies and, and the meaning behind them and the things, how they were kind of intertwined and tied together. See, much of what we read in the New Testament is greatly enriched when we understand how the Jews lived and interacted at that time. Now, you can read the Bible and get it just contemporarily. God reveals it to us. But you have to agree, when you read the New Testament, as many Christians do, and then you come across a passage that references or is a quotation from the Old Testament, you need to at least consider what it said back there. And so for me as a Christian, and when I was young, I didn't read the Old Testament much. It's the Old Testament. I read the New Testament. Why read the Old Testament? That's my logic. So I was just zipping through and catching the red letter good stuff and just kind of moving along. And then I'd come across something that was like this Isaiah guy. And I would say to Kim, so what's with this Isaiah thing? She said, okay, well, that's Old Testament, which I had to fight shutting down when she said that. But anyway, she, she, you know, we would do, our conversation then brought us, helped me to see they're intertwined. My understanding of the New Testament is greatly enriched. Matter of fact, I don't believe you can fully comprehend the New Testament without spending time in the Old Testament to see the groundwork and the foundation that's been laid for the coming Messiah. I think we can also agree that the culture... And the things that were happening in that time, as we understand some of those things, it it deepens our roots and and, and stabilizes uh, our our spiritual journey, if you would, and and at least helps it. Now, you're sitting here going, "Uh, Pastor Dan, we're we're in Revelation. (laughs) You know, are we taking a deviation? Are we going to Genesis now? No, we're going to go to Revelation 
chapter 19, it's interesting that what was established in Genesis is referenced in Revelation. Let's pray and then we'll tie this all together. God, as we're here today, we first want to recognize what you've established and instituted, what you have placed for humanity, Lord, for our benefit, Lord, for our joy and for our understanding. You have placed yourself at the center point of a marriage, Lord. You did that to give instruction, to bring humility, to water the heart and soul and soften the stubbornness that two could become one and understand the beauty of your presence and the transformation that takes place when you're invited and even allowed to conform and form people for their benefit, for their joy. And so we recognize marriages from you, God. We pray, God, for those who are struggling, that are just in the midst of a trial in regards to their marriage relationship. I would pray, God, that they would return to you being the center point, not just in conversation, but in conduct. Not just in acknowledgement, but in surrender. That you, God, would be glorified and they would be encouraged, protect marriages. We know the enemy desires to disrupt and divorce. Lord, we pray also for those who um, are just, they're, they're struggling, they have went through divorce. The enemy has come at them as if there's some type of fault or failure on their part. God, I pray that you would reveal your truth to them. Your love would be known in their hearts. That they, God, would be able to affix their eyes on you. Recognizing your restoration, your love, your presence. Free them from the work of the enemy that would come against them. May they, God, be able to just look forward to what you have in store. Experiencing, God, your touch. Free them, Lord, from that which would oppress them and hold them back, God. We pray for those who are entering into marriage, that they would not be drawn away by the deception of our culture and the shallowness of relationships to seen around them. The Lord, may they grasp and take hold of your beautiful truth, the beautiful design you have for marriage. And so, Lord, we just praise you for what you've established. And even, Lord, help us to understand what you will reveal today as you remind us that we are your bride, that you, the groom, that you have called us to be close to you. And so, God, thank you for what you'll do today. Teach us, God. We're so glad that you're faithful in your sweet name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, let's do as mentioned. Travel over to Revelation chapter 19. What I want to do is read verses 1 through 10. I know we covered the first seven verses last week. But to catch the context a little bit and see the framework, and we'll focus on 7 through 10, and then we'll, we'll go and look into detail what I've mentioned about the, the symbolism and the correlation and the connections within this marriage supper and the, the marriage ceremonies. So we read in verse 1 of Revelation 19, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. Again they said, hallelujah. 
Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So moving back up to verse 7, as I mentioned, let's let's kind of walk through this and uh, see what we can gather and gain. We notice from verse 7, actually it begins clear back in verse 1, now, this is a loud and a joyful and a wonderful time of celebration. Well, why is that? Well, let me give a further reference to the context. The church, which is made up of born-again Christians, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the church has been removed from the earth, caught up in an instant, in a moment, Raptured is the phrase, is the word that's referred to, the the event. They're taken up to heaven. John, as you understand, as we're reading this, is speaking of an event to come upon the planet. He's in. He's referencing heaven. As you went through this particular book with us, you've seen there's you're getting a a declaration and and a you know insight into what's happening on earth and then on heaven and then over here and these different views unfolding. But what's happened at this place in this point? The church has been taken up. The tribulation period has started. Part one, three and a half years of God's judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. Those who were here, some who went to church, some who spoke Christianese, but they were left behind because they weren't born again, born of the Spirit. Some never went to church, but there were people on the earth who have rejected Jesus Christ. And God's judgment is incrementally poured out on those who defied God and rejected God. Now, in the midst of that, as he is judging them, he's also inviting them, allowing them to turn to him, even as they would push the limit, so to speak. And there's mercy and grace, and people are saved, actually, through the tribulation period. As I mentioned, there's two parts, so to speak. The first three and a half is the tribulation period, and I like to think of the second half as the great tribulation period. The second half is, is where this one who is the Antichrist probably came on the scene and more influential and powerful at the time right after the rapture of the church when there was chaos on the planet. He starts ushering in answers and bringing solutions. This one world government, this one world monetary system, one world politics, everything united. But at three and a half years into this tribulation period, he will go into the rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem, and he'll blasphemously declare that he is God and that he is the one to be worshipped. And at that moment, the Jews will realize they've made a horrible mistake. 
They will start understanding the scripture in a, in a whole new perspective. Well, when that takes place, in God's judgments, which, as I've said, have been incrementally poured out. There was the, the uh, uh, started out with the seal judgments, and then the trumpet judgments, and culminating in the bowl judgments. Well, at the end of the seventh bowl judgment, then these antichrist world systems are defeated. Now, we're in the last part of the tribulation period, the seven-year period. Chapter 17 and 18, we've seen reveal that this, this system, referred to as Babylon, this Babylonian religious system, it was defeated. The religious side in chapter 17, and then in chapter 18, we see this, this Babylonian answer to um, God's design. It's an antichrist design that says, hey, you can, this is the way we can do it. We don't have to do it God's way. This is better. People, are, they bought into it. They got the mark. They got the stamp. They got the cash. But it all come apart. Chapter 18, we see the political and the economic side literally fail, and it's destroyed. So now there's more upheaval. Interestingly enough, now we're in chapter 19, and I believe that's why there's so much celebrating. So much rejoicing because those in heaven have seen this fight and this resistance and these horrible things happening. I believe it's the elders and the angels and the creatures that have a time reconciling that you and I, because we'll be in heaven anticipating this in the chapter 19 event. I don't believe that we'll be aware of totally what's happening here on earth. I'm just working this through in my own reality. Why would I say that? Well, I have a hard time having a smile on my face knowing what's happening in this place. Knowing the things that are unfolding and people more and more rejecting God and experiencing his judgment and will not turn to him. Well, what would keep me from knowing? Well, I think it's pretty simple. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we're so captivated by his presence and so enamored by the whole reality of heaven and what it is, it's not like we're going, oh, by the way, look, you're just, have you ever been so, so caught up in something? You're so focused, you just, and nothing seems to happen around you. And I think there's an element of that as this all unfolds. And so we hear, see in chapter 19, you know, it's, it's God's declaration in heaven there's still going to be another battle. There's going to be the millennial period, which is a thousand year of reign and rule. You and I will reign with Christ. Then there'll be another battle, and then we'll be the end. We're going to cover that here coming up as we work through this particular book. But in verse 7, the Lamb, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. We know who the Lamb is. That's Jesus. We know who his bride is. Bible tells us it's the church. But notice that verse goes on to say his wife has made herself ready. The church has made herself ready. Well, what does that mean? How, how were we, how was the church made ready? Understanding this symbolism and this, this relational picture that's being presented. We're made ready by his righteousness and we'll see here in a little bit that with the passage that I re- would reference there is the best summary, so to speak. And we're made um, prepared by the new relationship. See, as the betrothed wife, we'll get into that in a minute, what that means. It's, it's beyond just simply engagement. But a 
betrothed wife, one who was committed to the marriage, but hadn't experienced the final ceremony of a marriage, she would live set apart. It would be different because she was now living in hope and awareness of the ceremony to come. So the bride would live differently, like we're to live differently, agreed? You know, when we, we, we entered into this relationship, when we received from God this new life, this born-again experience, then we're called to say, now that you're, this is the new you, live in this new way. Don't go back to the old manner and the old means by which you used to live because you have something before you. You're looking for, it's pretty simple. We get it, even in our culture, right? Someone gets engaged, she's not going bar hopping like she used to. You know what I'm saying? Maybe she didn't, but you suppose there was one woman that used to do that. But she made now this commitment, guess what she's doing? She's, she knows where she's going, forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward to the things which are ahead. Verse 8, tying together, these two are very well synced. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in the fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So you see, what are, what are our righteous acts? What for you and I? It, it could get confusing if we don't look to Scripture for clarity. Do we then now, because we've committed to this relationship, do we then make sure we just stay the course? we got to make sure we keep it. we even got to get better to earn more points and stuff. Do we do things to get a better standing in the relationship? No, that's not righteousness. Not doing right things in that regard. Let's consider where our righteousness comes from. Out of Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says in verse 8, Yet I count all things lost... For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is God is from God by faith. So you see, the righteousness is what? It's from God by faith. We are, we are born again. That's an act of faith, receiving his gift. We are now given a new, new hope, a new life, a new focus. But it, it's not that we do things to get it. It's his righteousness that's accomplished it. Accomplished it. Isn't this so important? We inadvertently and subconsciously do things. In the back of our mind, we're thinking, well, now God will see me differently. Or he'll be more pleased with me. Or more approved. It's, it's, I've got to be more righteous before him now after all that I've done. And we're missing it. We're actually missing the invitation. We're missing the relationship. Our righteousness is faith in Christ. Believing that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. That he'll continue the work in our lives, transforming us. So, as we continue looking through this, let's move on to verse 9. Verse 9 is interesting. Then he said to me, right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the bride will be there. She doesn't need an invitation, right? The groom will be there. The bride is saints, is Christians. So who, who are the ones that are the invitees? Who's, who's in attendance? And I want you to consider, I, I lean towards, at this point in study, it's the Old Testament saints. It's the New Testament saints who come to Christ 
but we're not part of the rapture. Let me put it this way. We have the bride are those who were born again from the time of Jesus' resurrection, roughly, up to the rapture of the church. That's a, a unique group that you and I would be in. There's also those in the Old Testament side that were not everybody believed in Christ that were, lived in the time of the Old Testament. Not everybody believed in Jehovah, the living God. But many did, so they're referred to as the Old Testament saints. There's another group of people that come to Christ that are referred to as the tribulation saints. And that group of people, they will, they will be, I believe, in attendance, but things are different. And some people go, I, I, that's kind of awkward that God groups us different. No, it's not. It's just reality. It's not saying to the Old Testament saints, well, I, don't, I want you over there and you over here. It's just how life is. There's nothing preferential. There's nothing showing partiality. It's just the beautiful majesty of God laid out and, and worked out. So it's really important to see because some are thinking, well, can, you know, that's not, are they being punished? It's not punishment. It's arrangement. It's just how God has arranged things. And our natural minds, we don't realize how rooted they are to performance and, you know, some type of reward. But let's just, the, the scripture is pretty clear that there's this group that's in attendance. We know the others that I've just referred to. You know, considering also the last portion of the we're going to break apart and that's verse 10 well verse 9 is interesting because it says these are the true sayings of God like there's some that aren't true (laughs) these are the and really what I think is important look how it leads into these are the true sayings of God every one of us needs a reminder that these are the truth this is the truth of God John, on the island of Patmos, a faithful servant, an apostle of God, the one whom God loved, who Jesus loved, he had a very unique and beautiful relationship. He's, he's being uh, imprisoned on the island of Patmos. He, God, Jesus meets him there, brings him into an, a phenomenal personal experience. Seeing the things that happen, seeing in the future, the time that we live, the rapture to come, the tribulation taking place. He, he's experiencing all this and like, Whoa, and look at what he does. I fell at his feet to worship. Come on, John, you know better. What are you thinking? Because every one of us need to be reminded of the truth. And this other servant says, don't do that. I'm a servant just like you. He literally is telling him, hey, you know, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant. And of your brethren, and worship God. That's the exhortation. John, just keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Don't get caught up. Don't get comparing. Don't let even the moment help you or cause you to, to lose focus a little bit. Keep your eyes upon the Lord. The word of God directs us to Jesus. That's really what that's meaning when you see, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Maybe a way to say that is, for the truth of Jesus is the core of prophecy. All prophecy ultimately has one common goal, to direct you to Jesus Christ. Whether it's out of Genesis chapter 3, whether it's throughout the Old Testament, whether it's any part of the New Testament. Ultimately, prophecy, if you would see it this way, is God's word in a given situation, God's word for his people. God's word revealed to his people. And he will always direct us to Jesus Christ. Even Jesus said of the Holy Spirit who would come, he will direct you to me. 
He will draw your attention and send your, your thoughts, so to speak. He will bring to mind the things I have said. He'll be the one that convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he will glorify Jesus and not himself. So the spirit of prophecy, the very focal point, is directing us to the work, the person, Jesus Christ. So, I want to consider a few points concerning an ancient Jewish wedding. We have this beautiful picture. It's a reference of a time, an event to come. But we can draw from scripture and from history a little bit of how these wedding ceremonies went. Remember, we are his bride. That's his terms. That's his, he communicated that. Now, we have to agree, in God's design, the husband and wife relationship is the most intimate, the most personal, the deepest relationship a human can experience. Now, obviously, you have your relationship with God, but this design is his design. So if that, that is his design, and he says, I, I, I am the groom and you are the bride, conveying to humanity this, this personal thing that you could maybe relate to on a human level is much greater when I convey it to you from a spiritual level. So the first thing I would draw your attention to in consideration of ancient um, Jewish ceremonies, the bride was selected by the groom's father. We, we know that in phrases or references like, um, prearranged marriage. You've heard of that, right? Do you know the majority, arguably, percentage-wise, of the planet, marriages are prearranged? It's the Western civilization type influence that has changed a little bit. Both have their benefits and their liabilities. But let's consider something. The bride, you and I are the bride. The groom's father, Jesus tells us who his father is. In John chapter 6, verse 44... No one can come to me, Jesus is speaking here, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Also in John chapter 6, verse 65. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. You see what's unfolding? The invitation is from the Father. Ephesians 1, verse 4, speaking of what God has done, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The bride was selected by the groom's father, by the Father. You have been selected by God to be a part of this relationship. But don't overlook the second part. The second one I draw your attention to the woman would decide if she would go to be the bride. She had an element of, of decision-making. You could reference it out of Genesis chapter 24, verses 57 and 58. Abraham is old, up in the years, so he sends his servant to get a wife for his son Isaac. Isaac travels back to the homeland, if you would. Meets this person who then says, yeah, there's this other person, this Rebecca. Rebecca was asked about going to marry Isaac. So they're far a long way. She's never met Isaac. She's asked, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. She, she agreed, yes, I will go. And she literally like, has to pick up bags, get her servants, and she's out. Pretty fascinating. She makes this decision. See, you and I, we are invited into the kingdom of God by the Father. But God does not require you to be with him if you do not want to be. And people say, well, gosh, which is it? 
predestination or free will? Yep, it actually is. God has invited, determined, and, and, but he's not going to mandate. He's not going to require you to spend time with him if you don't want to be there. I know it sounds oversimplified, but your other option is to overcomplicate it. Keep it simple. It really involves both. Invited by the Father and exercising a response. I can't understand why we would say no when we understand the invitation. And if we don't understand the invitation, it's not because he didn't speak with clarity. It's because we're not getting our head out of the clouds. We're living, living in confusion. So fascinating as you consider this. Let's move on to another part of this marriage ceremony. A two-part marriage covenant is made. Now, there's the betrothal covenant. And that we can see um, even in regards to, um, say, Mary and Joseph. So the betrothal covenant uh, was legal. It was binding. It actually required a type of filing of a divorce to break it. Joseph, we're told, when he found out that his wife, who he was betrothed to, Mary, was pregnant, he understand that's what we call a problem. See, she was not supposed to be with the man, and now she's pregnant. So she kind of gives him the rundown on what happened and how it was. And he's like, we're told that he had a mind to put her away quietly and not make a public example of her. Because, see, there was an element of to break off the betrothal period. There were some legal requirements. But that's not the emphasis I want to sit with or stay with. The emphasis on this also is the betrothal covenant would include the groom's promises to his bride. The groom had a part. So father invites, the bride responds, receives the invitation. The groom then makes the promises to his wife-to-be, which is very fascinating because the promises of Jesus to you and I, his bride, are numerous. The, the Bible is you know, rich, loaded with all these promises of God. Let's consider just this one out of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We've been given these great and precious promises of what God has done and what he will do and what he is doing. We know also in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 25, uh, Jesus speaks of eternal life. I've given you, I promise you eternal life. We know Jesus spoke to you and to me, to the bride, to the church, that he would give us life and that more abundantly, that he would provide in every way, that he would take care of us. He invited us to experience a promise when he said to us, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, you're weary and tired, and I will give you rest. And as you, maybe even this week, will take a bit of an assignment and just uncover the promises God has made. Why is that important? Because lies will be presented to you. And the way to combat a lie is to know what the promise was that counters the lie. The lies will say to you, you should have did something different. You did this. You caused that. It always brings up your supposed failures and inabilities and incapacities, and it leads to, and if God was faithful, he wouldn't have let that happen to you. Those are all lies. How do you combat lies? How do you deal with those? Because they don't come in like email because you could just delete it. 
they have to deal with it because they come so randomly. They're spontaneous. They're through sensory realization or memory and different experiences. I believe you combat them with the knowledge of his promises. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I will carry you through. I will lead you beside still waters. I will be hope. You see what I'm saying? Man, when we realize those are the groom's promises to the bride. Now, father has made the selection. The bride has received. This marriage covenant has been established and agreed upon. What do you do next? Well, the next part was a cup of wine was shared to seal the betrothal covenant. A second cup will be shared later at the marriage ceremony. But this, this cup, and they literally, kind of like how we do communion, they would, they, would, they, were, they would share a cup and sip from it. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples when he instituted what we call communion? You'll find it there in Matthew 26. We'll bring it up on projection, verses 28 and 29. Now, the reason I mention this, realize these men who were there were Galilean. They were Jewish. They, they understood what he's talking about. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, notice this, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In my Father's kingdom. When will that be? Think Revelation 19, the marriage supper. That's when he'll drink it anew. Now he took it, he drank with his disciples. He took the, the communion with the betrothal covenant. See, the disciples would have noticed this. They would have picked up on it. Marriages were celebration. Marriages are deep commitments. They're used by God to present the special relationship he has designed for us and with us. And so I'm sure they were sitting there going, this is, this is like a marriage thing. This is like, this is kind of, remember when, you know, we went to this one and this one and this one are all the same. And this is, this is, has some parallels. This is some, what's he saying? I don't think they were like confused. I think they were intrigued at the depth of relationship the marriage brings. So a cup of wine is shared Jesus is going to bring this again in the second part. But the next step, the groom departs to the father's house to prepare their home. So you've caught it. They've made this agreement. And now he leaves, the groom. He leaves, and in their culture, what he would most commonly do would be go back to the father's house and work on an add-on, an additional room overseen by the father, but this is going to be the marriage chamber, the wedding chamber. This is going to be their place to stay. So he would, he would, the groom would go home and he'd start working on this. He could be gone for most generally up to a year, sometimes even up to two years. So he's gone. He's just taking care of stuff. Notice John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I believe his disciples understood exactly what he was saying. They're trying to sort out his departure. They're not clear on the crucifixion. But this is laying the groundwork for what's going to take place. And they have a personal reference even in their own lives. He, Jesus is going to his father's house to prepare this place. The groom departs. What does the bride do while the groom is gone? 
Well, the bride is set apart for the bridegroom. As we've seen there in Revelation, the wife is prepared. See, she's going to take care of herself because it's really simple. If you consider Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. Since, or if, then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The wife has made herself ready. And it's done now. The bride, we are the bride. We prepare ourselves. We're, we're, we're realizing this is not our home. There are some beautiful experiences and some great things that take place on planet earth for us. But this is not our residence. We are passing through. And we've got to recognize we have, by God's selection, by God, by an element of our reception, receiving, and his work, he's doing a work that he's taking us to. This, this place, like I say, I don't have a real attitude towards earth. It's where he's placed us. But I don't plan on staying here. I'm looking forward to the things to come. Eyes affixed, eager to see what will, take in the fu- what will happen in the future. And so you want to recognize that we're, that to be ready. What's interesting next is the wife is ready. You know, she's going to face temptation, trials, doubts, concerns. Her part is just to eagerly wait for the return of the groom, which could happen at any moment. You know, Jesus shared the parable of the the, the ten virgins, and they were to always be ready, even at midnight, that when the groom came, they were ready to go. And you see the picture for you and I in the church, to always be ready, to be, you know, longing for and looking to his return while we're effective in our purpose here today. Well, the next thing that happens is... The father sends the groom for the bride. Consider Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. See, the groom didn't know when the father was going to tell the groom to go get your bride. It wasn't just based on construction of the room. There was an element where the father just knew, okay, now go get your bride. So it wasn't just you know, construction and room preparation. It was just his timing. It was perfect. And the groom didn't know when that was going to be. The bride didn't know when that was going to be. But the father knew when that was going to be. Ready at any moment. Eager, longing, confident. The groom arrives, the next part. So basically the shofar trumpet would sound. And the groom would take his bride to the father's house. I believe that's where we're living right now, so to speak. We're waiting to be caught up to meet him in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. You and I are longing for that moment when the Father says to the Son, and we'll, to the Son go get your bride. And we'll be caught up. We'll meet him in the air. And we'll always be with him. That's the rapture of the church. What an amazing thing that's going to take place. This ancient Jewish wedding process is very, I think, encouraging. It's exciting. It's stimulating. Man, oh, wow, wow. How did I not see this? But I've, I've purposely skipped a step in the process. See, one other thing that took place. A price was paid for the bride. 
If the groom was serious, he would pay whatever the bride's father requested. Well, to use terms that we're familiar with in the real estate market, Jesus paid way over the asking price. He paid a great price, an extreme price. A price that's beyond comprehension, honestly, for the bride, which is you and I. Consider 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 tell us that of this life that we now have, born again. You do not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Also we find over in First Peter Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, speaking of this price paid, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. The things of this world will be valuable. That's not what you were bought with. Taken away from your aimless conduct, received by the traditions from your fathers. No, you were bought with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's the great price that he paid for us to be his. And we're actually even, don't, don't think of it as like, well, maybe he's going to search, search the heavens and find a, a better deal. No, see, he, he literally met a down payment. And the person of the Holy Spirit is his, his earnest money agreement, if you would, we're told in Ephesians, that he has placed himself within us until the day that he calls us home. So some of you may have seen the video I posted yesterday and I mentioned that we'd be taking communion today. And with that in mind, I, Greg's going to come up. And I want to consider not only do we see these parallels and these promptings to understand concerning the wedding ceremony, but we can see even within the wedding ceremony is when Jesus introduced, introduced or instituted what we call communion. We're recognizing what he has done for us. And so... What we'll do is I'm going to offer a prayer up, Uh, we'll pray together, and then uh, we'll join in with Greg as he leads us in a worship song. During that song of worship, if you desire to take communion day as a Christian, one who's committed your life to Jesus Christ, if you desire to take communion, there's elements on either side of the stage, I believe there's some in the back as well. During that song of worship, come up, pick those elements up, retain them, hold on to them until I come back up, and then we'll take communion together. Will you stand with me and we'll pray together? God, as we are here today absorbing so many verses and so many truths, so much there, we just thank you, God, for the richness and for the depth for the truth that you bring to us, Lord. Something as beautiful and wonderful as a wedding, and yet you show more and more our picture of you and our relationship with you and what we, can, what we have in you, God. Thank you, Lord, that you're teaching us. You're helping us to separate from the things of this life and focus upon you while we're effective here, fulfilling your purpose, but ultimately looking forward to your return. If you're here or maybe you're listening to this message and you don't have that confidence that you have that relationship with Jesus, you need to make a decision and I'm not pressuring you, but you know, some who hear this message will not be raptured. They will not be in heaven. 
at the time of the tribulation. They will have known the invitation, but they will not say, I do or I will. Whatever it may be that's interfering with you or causing you to resist the love of God, I, I exhort you, I encourage you, rethink what's interfering. It's so important that you receive what he's extended to you. It begins with recognizing that he's right. God, I, I know you're right. I know I need your forgiveness. I know the things I've done and nobody else knows but you know. And I know only you can forgive me and you would pray just as that would be the sample, example. God, forgive me for what I've done and how I've lived. And, and I ask that you would give me this new life that you speak of, that you offer, that I would receive from you that invitation. I agree I need it. I agree I'm wrong. And I ask you to give me this new life, this born-again life, Jesus. I put my faith in you. And Lord, I would say humbly and truthfully, now I don't know what to do. Putting my faith and trust in you, I would ask also by faith that you would lead me in this new life. That I not turn back to where I used to be, but I would understand how to live the new life you speak of in faith. Knowing your word, knowing your truth, knowing you, Jesus. Teach me, God. And God, may that be each one of us May that be our continual prayer. Teach us, Lord. May our necks be soft and pliable, not stiff and resistant. May our hearts be formable, shapeable into vessels that you could use, not dry and stubborn. God, may you do that sweet work that only you can accomplish. Thank you, Lord, for what you're teaching us. And we prepare our hearts now by way of song, by way of reflection, to take of this beautiful practice, this design of yours, communion, as we remember what you've done for us. Lord, we sing to you, Jesus.